There was a father in the airport waiting for their flight to board, and he was there with his three kids. And his three kids were terrorizing everyone waiting to get on the plane. So they were already like looking forward to this is going to be a great flight because dad is just sitting there staring out the window when the youngest of the kids doesn't even have pants on, is wearing the diaper and is laying under the chairs chewing on bubble gum. The other two kids are fighting over the phone and screaming and hitting each other. And the mumble, you know how the mumbling kind of starts? It's like people are trying to like, be like, hey, dad, get it together. But they don't want to say it too loud yet. And so it's quiet. And the clues are being given of like, hey, don't you want to go sit with your dad? And dad is just off in space. And the kids are terrorizing it. And people's like, their blood pressure is starting to elevate. You know how that happens in those rooms when everybody sees the problem except for the one person who's supposed to fix it? And they're like, what kind of dad is this? Like, this is letting his kids run wild and terrorize this many people. And then eventually a spokesman arises. And, and one guy has had enough and he says with a loud enough voice that the dad can hear and everybody else in the terminal says, could you get your kids under control? What is wrong with you? And like, boom, terminal goes silent. And the dad, not speaking loudly at all, almost like he just got shook and woken up from a bad dream in a very quiet voice says, I'm sorry, we're going home from their mother's funeral. And it's like all the air just left the terminal because everybody knew what was going on until they knew what was going on. And all of the perspective of what kind of father are you, why is that little girl's hair not brushed? It's like it all got sucked out. And it's one of those moments where we recognize the truth that we have to be slow to speak, slow to anger, and slow to judge. Because all too commonly, we know what's going on, we know what the problem is, even though in reality, we don't know enough. And today, we're, we're studying the book of Esther. We're, we're on this journey through Scripture. We started at the beginning in Genesis from, from the time that God spoke everything into existence. And he set up Adam and Eve with everything they needed. And he had this plan of just perfection in the garden, but man rejected that. And we chose sin. And then God began his work of restoration, of bringing his people back. And he set up a nation and then the nation was disobedient and they fell away and they got dispersed and they're starting to go back to Israel. And this is where Esther happens, where some of the Jewish people are going back to their nation, but not all of them are there yet. And we find Esther in a Jewish community that is outside of Israel. And it's a, it's a very difficult situation. There's a few things I want to give you context before we get into our main passage of the day. Just for context's sake, the, the, the king Xerxes, he, he was a, a rough man. He summoned his wife to come and he wanted to show off his wife's beauty. He wanted to parade her around like an object, like unfortunately how women were very much treated in that day. And he said, hey, I want you to come so I can show you off to, to my friends. And she was like, no, I'm not going to do that. And so, boom, he removed her as queen. 
And, so, and, then, and then he asked his advisors and he's just going to pick a new one. And he gets this parade of women that he'll, he'll add to his harem. He was an unjust, bad king. But one of the women that were pulled into this parade of who's going to be the next queen was this woman named Esther. And she was of Jewish origin. She came from a Jewish line and she was raised by her uncle Mordecai. We don't really have details of what happened to her mom and her dad, but, but she was raised by Mordecai. And he warned her because there's hostility towards the Jewish people. He said, as you go through this, don't tell them about your ethnicity. And she had the wisdom to listen to him and not say anything about that. And then the, the king chose her to be the next queen. And then there's this man, Haman, who hated the Jews and he got the king to sign a proclamation saying 11 months from now, let's wipe out the Jews in all of our provinces. And he signed it because they wouldn't bow down to the gods and they, they wouldn't follow the, the things that he wanted to follow. So let's just wipe them out. And so here's Esther, this young queen, married to the man who has just said, all of your people are going to be wiped out of our provinces and killed. And this is Mordecai speaking to Esther as this proclamation has been made. And we're going to put this up on the screen from Esther chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. This is Mordecai speaking to her and he says, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your fa father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is a difficult place that she's been in because if you remember the context of how she arose as the queen, the queen just chose not to come in a room when summoned. So let alone going and asking or demanding or seeming like you have a, caught it. Or seeming like you are gonna tell the king what to do is very dangerous. In fact, she couldn't even approach the king unless summoned. If she walked in to the throne room and the king didn't give the signal of reaching out his golden scepter towards her, she would be put to death for just approaching the king without being summoned. So even to go and make this request of deliverance for the Jewish people, the, the, the opportunity to speak to the king, even as a queen, was a dangerous thing for her to do. And so Mordecai's request for her to step out in faith, it was dangerous. And I'm going to give you guys three, three thoughts, three points, three lessons today of things that we can learn from Esther. And the first point, you're going to love this. You're going to want to share this point with other people. Number one, know when to keep your mouth shut. I know some of you guys are like, if that's point number one, I have someone that I need to email the link to this, this message to right now. Like that, that, that's enough right there. But no one to keep your mouth shut. She was given advice that don't say too much about this. You need to know when to speak, when not to speak. Like there's times where we need, need to bite our tongue. And I want to tell you, this is biblically sound Old Testament to New Testament. I can give you some examples, especially for the Christian trying to live for God. Um, first of all, in matters of preference, there's things, matters of preference in our faith that we really should just keep our mouth shut about. Romans 14, verses one through eight, it talks about this. That early in the church, there was major divisions and arguments that were happening 
over what kind of food people ate. They're like, no, like if you really want to honor God, then you need to eat kosher food only or vegetarian food only or definitely don't eat the meat that's sacrificed to idols. And these other people are like, the idols are nothing. They're not real. I can eat the meat. They're not a God. God is God. He can bless it and give it to me. And it created huge division in the church. And the apostle Paul wrote them and said, listen, when God puts something on your heart, you follow your conviction, but you don't get to apply your conviction to someone else if it's not a biblical command. And he wrote about this in a couple of different ways. I want you to be clear. The Bible is absolutely clear that drunkenness is a sin for the believer. But I don't want you to miss or have to make excuses for the biblical truth that Jesus' first miracle is that he turned water into good, mature wine. And we are told that alcohol consumption is supposed to be done in moderation. And that's one of those things of conviction. I can understand the conviction of it's dangerous and you, and you can be addicted to it. But listen, what the Bible teaches is moderation. And so the only thing that we can absolutely slam down teach is moderation because the word of God is higher than any opinion. The word of God is higher than any hedge of protection that we might put around something. We trust the wisdom of the word of God above all things. And so if the word of God says the line is here, then that's where the line is. Whether it's food, whether it's the type of music that we play at church, whether it's the type of clothes that we wear to church, there are things of opinion. And what scripture teaches is that you follow your convictions, but you cannot apply your non-biblical convictions to another believer. All right. And so matter of preference, believers should keep their mouth closed about some of those things. To people who won't listen, this should be a freeing piece of information to you. All right, this is good news to you, that when you are trying to share wisdom with someone who will not receive it, the Bible actually tells you to just stop. And that might sound weird, but Jesus taught it this way. He said, don't take the gospel or don't take your encouraging words, don't take your wisdom and throw it before swine. It's like throwing pearls before, before swine. They'll eat them and muck them up in the mud and they will not appreciate them for what they are. That's what he's saying. He, he said, and in fact, he compares it to dogs too. And he, and he says, and they'll actually tear you apart as well. Not only will they trample on the beautiful wisdom that you're sharing with them, but they will tear you up because you know when you are like, sharing and sharing and sharing and that person is just mocking and mocking and not listening like it begins to like break your heart as well now I want to clarify this because we should share the gospel but when we encounter someone who is a mocker we're told not to waste our breath and when God opens a door again then yeah we'll share again but while that door is shut we're told not to waste our breath in that situation to people who won't listen we're also supposed to stay silent when we're angry. I know that it feels good to let it all fly when you are angry. Well, it feels good for about a minute or two. Then the adrenaline rush is gone. And you look at the tears in the eyes of the people that you love the most. And you regret and in one moment, in just a few sentences, in anger, you can be stuck with years worth of repair that you have to make. 
Proverbs 15.1, James 1.19, speaking up when we are angry, we know that it is destructive. Judging someone else's motives. This is another freeing thing for you. You don't need to figure out why someone is doing something. We're told to judge the fruit of the tree, not the way in which the fruit is produced, because this is what scripture tells us. You don't even understand why your heart is compelled to do certain things, good things or bad things. You can't even weigh the motives of your own heart. So if you can't figure out what your heart is doing, how are you gonna figure out someone else's heart? And how much anxiety and stress are you gonna waste? How much emotional energy are you gonna burn up for no good reason sitting there trying to figure out someone else's psychology? Free yourself from that and just recognize it doesn't matter. You cannot control. Some of you won't believe me on this. You cannot control someone else's behavior. You cannot control someone else's decisions. Their choices will be their choices. And you can be part of the process of repair and loving those people, but you cannot control them. Stop wasting your emotional energy on it. Stop, stop worrying about, stop talking about and trying to figure out why they're doing what they're doing. You can't judge someone else's motives. The last thing about where we need to just bite our tongue a little bit more is when you don't know what you're talking about. Some of you guys have had that happen to you before. Uh, we've all been the recipient of advice from someone who has no idea what they're talking about. And we've all, I think, probably been in the situations where it's like we want to help someone, but we don't really know, so we're just going to kind of guess some. I want to give you permission to not know everything. And maybe this conclusion has been forced upon me because I, my life as a pastor gets connected to lots of other people's lives. And especially traditionally in the past, it was like pastors were these sages that just had answers to every single question. It's like, if you need psychology help, go talk to the pastor. If you need spiritual help, go talk to the pastor. If you need a plumber, go talk to the pastor. If you need computer repair, go talk. No, like I, I will happily tell you, I don't know that. And especially if you need counseling, this is one of the things to know about our church. I will talk to you about the problem in your life one time, and then I will send you to a counselor because I am not a counselor. And because there are people who can help you with that that are not me and that will actually help you. And I could probably send you in the wrong direction if I tried to talk about something that I don't know. And I want to give you the permission to be humble enough. You know that scripture time and time again teaches us to be humble, to consider others above ourselves. Consider the opinions of others above your opinion sometimes too. Part of that humility will actually be when you begin to say, no, I know what I should do, but if you would just stop for a second and let someone tell you what they were about to tell you, you might learn something you needed to learn. Sometimes you intercept wisdom getting to you because you say, I already know how to fix this problem. Be humble enough to listen. There's times where we need to keep our mouth shut. And then number two, we also need to know when to speak up. Esther knew that she needed to keep part of her life out of the king's mind and out of Haman's mind, who was the man who kind of instituted the plan to wipe out the Jews. And then 
there is also a time to speak up. Psalms 82, verses three through four. Let's put this up on the screen. It says, defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. We as Christians, there has to be times where we recognize it's time to speak up now. Now there's times where it's like, if I speak up, I'm casting pearls before swine. I'm not gonna worry about it. I'm not gonna speak in this situation, but there's times where we need to stand up for what is true, for what is right. And we might recognize that they'll agree with us or they won't agree with us. They might love us for what we say. They might hate us for what we say. But once again, their reaction to what we say should not control us saying what God has told us to say. When God has put it on your heart that you need to speak, that is when you speak. And I believe there's a maturity process of figuring out and learning the leading of the Spirit of God where you recognize God wants me to speak up here or I just want me to speak up here. And learning to know the difference is part of your spiritual maturing process. But there are times where we need to stand up for what is right, stand up for what is righteous, and we need to be looking for the opportunities where we're standing up for those who are in trouble. And that's what Psalms um, 82 actually speaks to. Defend the weak, defend the fatherless, defend the orphan and the widow in her distress is what scripture tells us to do. I'm gonna give you two areas of good examples of, of places where Christians should be looking to stand up for someone else. One, And this is a difficult one. I think you would be shocked to learn how much domestic abuse happens in our culture and in our city. And if you begin to talk with any of the police officers or law enforcement officers in our church, they'll tell you it's an issue. And in fact, even, if I, even as I begin to talk about domestic abuse, some of you guys probably have some neighbors that pop into mind where you say, I've heard things going on, but it's not my business. Scripture has made it your business. Scripture has made it your business to love your neighbor and be concerned about them. Scripture has made it your business to pray and support and help and rescue And in cases of domestic violence, we should be concerned about our neighbor's safety and health. In our culture, I believe that one of the areas that we as Christians should have our heart turned towards is single parents. Whether they've lost a spouse, spouse's involvement to death or divorce, we as Christians should be looking to those families and helping and supporting and I will tell you, I'm a little biased towards this because I was raised by a single mom. And so I've seen how much help those parents need from that side of the equation. I have four kids of my own and I'm like, I don't even know how my mom did this. And there's single moms in this church and in, on the street in, in, which, in the neighborhood in which you live that need your help and support. And as Christians, we're supposed to be concerned about the fatherless. For many topics in many areas, especially when it clashes with culture, there should be a sentiment in us where we say, okay, this is what the word of God says, so this is my opinion on it. 
Culture might feel this way, but this is what the word of God says, and so, boom, this is where we're at. And within Christian circles, there's often a pretty good lining up of that, except for a few categories. And one of them is in the area of immigrants and refugees. And if this makes you start to tense up a little bit, I want to assure you, I'm not going to give you Paul's opinion. I want to just give you some scripture. And I'll put a whole list of scripture up on the screen, which you can take a a picture of this and you can go look that up and do some research of your own. I'm going to read you Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 through 34 to provide clarity to you of what scripture teaches from Old Testament to New Testament regarding those who are immigrants to our countries or foreigners in our countries, which says, when a foreigner resides among you, this is what he was telling Israel, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love love them as yourself. Need to read that again. Love them as yourself. I'm not even preaching on this. I'm just reading it to you. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt, is what he told the people of Israel. He reminded them of how they were mistreated, how they were slaves in Egypt. And he called them towards an action of don't do to anyone else what has been done to you. And it's an area where we need to begin to speak up and care for those who are among us. Number three, we need to know when to take a risk. Esther was put in the situation where her uncle was telling her, you have been positioned here and it just seems like that you might have been brought here for just a time as this and you need to go and do something. But that, that, that opportunity to do something, it also came with the opportunity that it could go terribly wrong. She might lose everything. And she might even be one person who is in the position to be okay, even though everyone else isn't okay. And she was told that she needed to step up by someone that she, she loved and she respected. And I want to tell you something. This is opinion. I'm stepping outside. This is, this is not scripture. This is not defined by scripture. This is opinion based on the study of other passages and other occurrences where God gives someone an opportunity and they either take it or leave it. And so receive this as Paul's opinion. But as, if Esther had not done something, I believe what Mordecai said that she probably would have perished. I believe that thousands of Jewish people would have died, but deliverance would have risen up through someone else. I believe there would have been death, there would have been bloodshed, it would have been terrible, but through that, God would have still found a way and he would have delivered the Jews, just like Mordecai said in this passage. I think that we have great examples of these intersections where people are given an opportunity and a choice to to respond and take a risk, and they either take it or leave it. And it's interesting to me because we have occurrences like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and he's like, I've kept the law since the time that I was young. What else do I need to do? What else do I need to do to be justified? And Jesus said, come and follow me and leave all your riches behind. And he went away sad because he had great wealth. And I believe that he had an opera. He was invited to be a disciple of Jesus. Like we would have heard all about the things that he did in his life if he had said yes and he left it all behind. But he chose worldly wealth over heavenly treasure. And so we heard nothing else about him. 
We see people that when Jesus got to the hard teachings, they fell away and we hear nothing new about them. But then there's some other people who are just completely ordinary. Like there's this guy Jabez in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. And we just have this one little snippet of him. And it says he was named Jabez because his mother said that he was born through, through sorrow or through pain. Like that's his origin. But it says, but then he prayed this prayer. And God answered it. And it was like through all of the busyness of scripture and the kings and the adventures and all the different things that happened in Chronicles, it's like, we just have to tell you about this one guy who had a, he had a heart for God. And so you need to know that he was there and that he prayed this way. And it's just interesting because there's these intersections where things will just pop into scripture or someone who seems significant will completely fall out based on the way they choose to follow God. And so it will be with your life. There will be opportunities that if you step in and you take the faith-filled risk, that God is going to open up this incredible story that is going to be noteworthy, that your family will talk about how you took that step one day, how you entered recovery and you got your life back together, how you brought things that were in the darkness out into the light, how you started that ministry, how you started that career, how you took a risk for the kingdom of God and God met you right there. And it becomes stories that your children tell your grandchildren who tell your great-grandchildren. And God builds these testimonies, but so often we encounter these moments and we're like, ah, someone else will do it. Yeah, someone else will do it, but there will be loss of opportunity. There will be loss of status. There is even loss of life sometimes when we don't do what we're called to do. I'm gonna, I got three minutes to try to finish this up. You guys ever been tubing down a river before? It, this is, I don't know, we, we, Florida, I've lived in Florida and Georgia, Ohio and Indiana and up in Georgia, tubing is a really big thing because there's not alligators that'll like snatch your ankle from under the water while you're, and so it's much more relaxing in Georgia than it is in Florida. Um, and it's just this lazy thing, like you sit in a tube and you float down the river until they tell you to get out and it's like, all right, that was a great outdoor adventure. It's like a lazy boy going down the river, like it's, it's, it's all right, like it, it's fun. Um, bring a cooler that floats with you. It's an enjoyable day. And I think that a lot of churches kind of operate that way. Like we, just, we hop in and we just kind of float down the river and like we're going somewhere. We're, go, we're getting there slow, but we're going. We're not sinking like it's okay. And, and that's, that's generally how I've kind of felt in this last season of the church that it's like, we, and, and I haven't pushed on you yet. And so I bear this on my own shoulders because we're, we're going down the river and everything's fine. Like we're growing, like we're financially stable, like we're working on our building, like things, things are going well and nothing is sinking. But man, it's a very different experience to be in a boat with four outboard engines, wide open throttle running out on flat water. Those are two different experiences. And I am much more inclined to say, let's go after the vision that we can accomplish. Let's go fast and let's go far and let's move together and let's get the throttle wide open. I don't wanna just float because there's opportunities that we're missing. 
There's chances that we have that will not be here again next week. There are connections to neighbors that will be beside you for a while. And if we don't do what we can do now, there will be loss. And if we just float through, we're missing tremendous opportunities. And I'm going to tell you some of the things that are on my heart right now. Uh, and some of these are connected to the building, but some of these are like, why can't we just get started now? It's what some of the trustees were pushing on me about this last month of like, what is it that we can just go on now, Paul? Like, we don't have to wait for a building for some of these. And so I want to tell you some of the things. When we have a building, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. We won't have to set up and tear down. We will have a projector that wasn't made in 1995. It'll be great for so many different reasons. One of them is like, I can see like, we're, we're going to have a coffee shop and everybody loves a latte and all that. And that's good. But man, we're going to, it's going to be a place where people with developmental disabilities are going to be able to employ. And I can already see in their eyes, the feeling of like, I, I am somewhere and I'm connected and I'm important and I am serving and I'm useful and God has a purpose for my life and I am serving people and, and the joy that they have, I can already see that. And I can't wait for us to have a building so that I can see that in fruition. I can't wait till our Gulfside Academy, our preschool is open. And we see these little kids who are spending so much time on YouTube, learning from emotionally unstable people who have a need for attention and post whatever content in the video, if it'll just get likes and Kids are used to seeing that and instead they're going to be fed the word of God on a daily basis. And I can't wait to see them all in their Gulfside Academy shirts learning the word of God every single day. Like I can't wait to see that happen. And I want to speed the day that we get, get to that. I, I can't wait until we, one of the things about having that building that we've always said, and this is one of those things, it's like, do we have to wait? I don't think we necessarily do. We could push it forward. I want to get a Spanish congregation started with a Spanish-speaking pastor and begin re reaching that segment of our city that so desperately needs more people reaching into them. And why can't we just start a one o'clock Spanish congregation? We already have everything set up. Let's get things going on it. Like that's something that we don't have to wait to get started. I want to get a mobile food pantry started. We have some some incredibly impoverished areas very close to us. And some of them don't even have transportation to get to any of the few food pantries that we have in this area. Let's something, set something up that we are going to them and serving them. We need more recovery ministries in this area. Drug addiction is a huge family destroying issue and we can have an impact on that as we start recovery ministries. We need to begin having weekly, weekly service projects to our city. And we have the capacity to do that. It doesn't have to be 50 people on a week. It can be five people going out and making a difference and rotating and different people doing it. We can start so many things that would affect so many lives. Right now, I anticipate that in the next five years, our city, our city leaders and council members are going to learn to call our church when someone in this area needs help because they know that we'll do it. And these are the things that I want to be pushing us towards. But the reality is that on my day off, I'm making calls to get people to come and do set up and tear down team right now because the teams are diminished. And I haven't pushed on you about it. So some of you guys are like, I didn't even know, like we're floating down the river. Everything's fine. I didn't think you needed my help. Everything is always set up on Sunday. Listen, we have to get active and passionate about what God is doing in here so that everything can grow and expand and so that we can get more out there. And we're going to start some of this stuff out there even before everything is exactly how we want it here. But this is the push that you have been positioned for a specific reason in a specific time. There are specific opportunities that are fleeting and moving past us. And band, you guys can come on out here. I'm going to wrap this up. Esther's response as she, as she worked through this 
I'm going to go ahead and go to Esther chapter 4, verse 16. She, she sent this message to Mordecai. She said, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and, and fast for me. That, that means to pray and fast for me because she's scared about what she has to do. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Dude, she understood. She's like, I have to, I have to do something. I, can't, I couldn't live in this palace if I did nothing. And I want to stir up in our congregations, minds and hearts, that you have to do something. The kingdom of God is being built now. And the movement that God desires to happen in this area, God is going to work through someone, whether it's us or not. God will raise up some churches and he will give them influence and he will give them resources as they are passionate about fulfilling the great commission and the callings that go along with that. But I, with all patience, if you're part of Gulfside Church, I want you to be very uneasy about doing nothing because you are gifted and you are called to do something. And if you're doing something that is outside of the ministry circles of the church, great, you're doing something. That's awesome. But if right now you are just letting life and Netflix and social media scrolling devour the hours of your life, you're missing an opportunity that I want you to grab a hold of. And we in the church, we, we need you because there's, there's more vision than we have people to fulfill it right now. There's more opportunities than we have people who have taken up their calling. And I want to catch up to it so that we can begin to reach and do more in this city and beyond.